Frederica Newton. The widow of Huey Newton founded the Dr. Huey P. Newton Foundation over 25 years ago to memorialize and celebrate the Black Panther Party and its founder, her love, Dr. Huey P. Newton. Through love, strength, and resilience, she shares the significance of correcting the false narratives and memorializing the legacy and impact of the Black Panther Party in the way they deserve to be commemorated. Frederica works tirelessly with a great amount of thoughtfulness, care, and the love needed to push the foundation's vision forward. This is a big job, but Frederica is not alone. She has surrounded herself with a team of brilliant individuals like Xavier Buck, the deputy director of the foundation, who has been a strong leading force. Both have worked closely together every step of the way, doing the groundwork, navigating internal systems, from creating initiatives, fundraising events, attending city council meetings, everything it takes to make sure the foundation's work is heard loud and clear. The foundation's success is a testament to the great teamwork and the trust they have in each other. They are individuals focused on making a long lasting impact by shifting narratives through the creation of public art and public monuments. Please join me in this episode where I have the honor of speaking with Frederica Newton and Xavier Buck. Where did this journey of public art begin for you? It started a few years ago when we wanted to work with the National Park Service and create a, an actual public monument in Oakland. And we took it before the Trump administration and it got shut down. So I was kind of a little, we put a lot of work into it. And I was a little demoralized by it, a little defeated. Why were you turned down originally? Like what was their reason for saying no monument? Uh, well, it was actually no Black Panther anything. We got a grant, $98,000, I think that was awarded to create a Black Panther Party memory project. And that would yeah. have been hopefully included a public art piece. And once it came, the fraternal order of the police protested it. Wow. And Biden, I mean, not Biden, of course, not Biden. Trump put the kibosh on it. Just um, because of the Black Panther name on it. Because of the Black Panther name and an alleged situation with Park Ranger, I think it was in Marin and an alleged Black Panther Party member. So, And this fraternal. is 2016? That was 20 before. Yeah, it was 2016. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, it's just um, unbelievable that at, in 2016, you're still being confronted with no, because it has a Black Panther name on it. At what point do you think it changed? Or what was it? Was there a moment? Or I mean, I know you've been at it a long time. You know, Black Panther Party has not had many doors open. The, the foundation representing this legacy, we've it's just now with where the, the party's been recognized through movies like Judas and the Black Messiah and Participant Media, which is promoting the, the movie, that people have become more aware and knowledgeable about what the party actually did as opposed to how we were portrayed. I'm kind of pinching myself sometimes because of the interest and not only the interest, but the doors that are being open where Peter, people are actually really hungry for this knowledge. I mean, the National Park Service, which is America's storyteller, really are, are supporting that we get a national park dedicated to the history and legacy of this party. And this is for the monument for the Black Panthers, but this is actually for the National Park historical monument 
and or park unit. And we've gotten Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and San Francisco signed on to support this. That's incredible. So the park would be dedicated to the Black Panthers. I mean, it would be the Black yeah. Panthers National Park. And, and, and don't think of it in the traditional sense, like Yosemite or Yellowstone. <laughs> okay. It would be part of scattered sites throughout Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, San Francisco, and quite conceivably or possibly throughout the nation because the Black Panther Party was present in 46 cities. How extraordinary. I mean, it, it's really so powerful. It's long overdue. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to you. I, I was born and raised in New York City, and I was raised to love the Panthers, that the Panthers oh. were saving families. They were saving babies. They saved children, you know, fed hungry people. They were doing great work. And mm -hmm. I, I just feel like it was such a missed opportunity that Oakland didn't own and praise the Panthers. I mean, yeah. that's the birthplace of the Black Panthers who nationally saved lives. Um, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. It gets me fired no, up, though. <laughs> I mean, it's really like insane. <laughs> that's actually the work that we're doing. So when I hear that, it just, you know, feeds me. Um, so let's talk about Huey's monument, because um, it's so important. And I talked to Dana King about it, um, uh -huh. and she told me how deeply you were involved in the process. Yeah. Um, so how did you choose Dana? You know, what, start from the beginning. How did that happen? How did it all start? It really did start on a street corner and it, and it happened very quickly. There's um, a woman, Jill Christina, who you know, was uh, having a mural placed on the side of her house to commemorate the women of the Black Panther Party. And Erica Huggins had suggested I go down and see the work in progress and, and meet Jill Christina, who I actually had known before that, because I used to go down to that site a lot and talk to people and, you know, just to see what happened that night that Huey died. Her home is directly across the street from where Huey passed. When I went and I went across the street and I, I looked at the site and I said, I've got to do something and I've got to put a plaque here or something. I talked to one of the neighbors there and he says he, he worked at a foundry or something. He said, yeah, I've thought about, often thought about doing something myself right here in the sidewalk. So we were looking and I left there and I said, I'm going to go to this one organization around the corner that does work in metalwork and see if they could create a plaque. Well, by the time I got home, I said, no, what am I doing? Let me call Dana. Dana met me down there. I think either the, I think it was a couple hours later, went back down there and it went from a plaque to a standing plaque, to a bust, to a full bronze piece up the street in the rock. And there's a big boulder there. So that idea really had happened within 24 hours. I just thought Dana would be perfect. I love Dana. She's close by. She's a brilliant artist. I could have um, be part of the creative process. And so, the, you know, you just saw there were about five of us women on that on that corner. Yeah, we can do this. And and within 24 hours that we were off and running, it really started from a small plaque. Um, and talking with Dana, you know, she loved this project so much. And she said she leaned on you so hard to learn who Huey was as a person. And that there was a moment, you know, she was like, it wasn't right. It wasn't right. And there was a moment that Huey came to the piece. And yeah. then she said, and he wouldn't stop talking. And she said, you're not my man. You belong with Freddie. <laughs> you got to get out. Look at my man at night. <laughs> 
couch. He was getting a little too attached over there. <laughs> but she said it was you brought him, you know, because you were there with her the entire time and you would come in and you were part of the process of building him. And she said she absolutely he wouldn't have come if you hadn't been there. You know, she said his spirit really filled, you know, as soon as she could see him in his eyes, then he was there. Well, it's quite an extraordinary relationship to the peace and to the creation of the peace and to Dana. You know, it's a very intimate relationship. It's even hard to describe because I don't know any many people who've been able to experience bringing their love back to life in a piece of art. I didn't have to. I got to work really closely with her. It, it couldn't have been done any other way, I don't think. And there were some times, particularly when I, I consulted with a friend, because there was that one stage where he just wasn't Huey. Um, yeah. Dana called me in there for the very first time. She was excited because she just created a neck. I remember that. <laughs> I went over there. This is a neck. And Dana's Dana's interesting because she she doesn't have a lot lot of ego involved in the process. So for me, I would wanted somebody to see it when it was absolutely what I thought was perfect. And she invited me throughout the whole process to witness it. There was one time where I thought we were had gotten really close to the end of it. And it wasn't right. Like his eyes were not right. And I couldn't sleep for about four nights. Aww. I was just up thinking about, oh my God, this is the eyes are just not right. He, he almost looked like despairing. I called a friend who, who does forensic work with, with um, sculpture. And she said, your hands have memory. She said, go and lay your hands on him. Aww. You'll remember what he felt like. And you'll remember. She said, trust it. Your hands have memory. And that's what I did. And I went and I laid hands on him. And that's when it just started to take a whole new life. It started to take on Huey. That was, yeah, one of the more memorable moments there when he started to really become his own. It's so beautiful. And, and you know, Dana tells a very similar story that it sort of took you coming in um, and, and that you were so honest through the whole process. You know, she loved working with you, that you guys had this great communication. And she also talked about Huey's eyes, that he wasn't there until he was there. It's true. It's yeah, it's really true. And um, my son came in and, and Dana had to ask, is he an artist? Because he he wanted his mouth to to do a certain thing where it wasn't downturn. It was up just ever so slightly. And we brought in other people, too. Like I brought in an old, old school hairstylist, barber, <laughs> Diamond Ken to look at his afro Good. and get, get his baby hair right had to had to be right it has to be right it has to be perfect you know because what's beautiful about us recording today talking about this in a thousand years that statue will be there you know yeah. and here we are today talking about this moment and this process and if you had one of huey's hairs wrong it's a different you know it's a different sculpture it has to be him it has to be perfect you know, Fran, it really makes me think of because the last time I, I was able to to touch him like that or to to make sure that he was he looked right was when he was at the at the mortuary. When he was killed, they by the time I not by the time I went to Highland Hospital that morning 
and they sat us in this room and I had worked in that ER a few months prior and had left Kaiser, I was a nurse. And that room where they sit, the family of victims in that ER is, it's, it's painted this putrid green, mm -hmm. but you would always hear these animal screams from that room when the doctor would go in and tell the people's loved one that their, you know, their person had died. And here yeah. I was in that room. Oh gosh. And so they never came in. We were in there forever. And finally, you know, I went out, can somebody help us? I, where's my husband? And they had already moved him to the morgue. So I never got to see him until he was at the mortuary the night before the public viewing. But then that I had my cousin with me and I said, oh, oh no, he, he wouldn't have his the goatee and he wouldn't have his hair like that. And um, I said to the guy, can you fix this? If not, she can fix it. My cousin can. And she's like, oh. <laughs> oh so it was so special from here on. He, he, you know, it was him. It was just right. And it's so important. And I know his spirit is thanking you. It's the <laughs> magic is in those details. You know, so this is one of the first times we met. I had wanted to do some sort of tribute to the Black Panther Party. And I reached out to you um, asking you about Huey and you basically stopped me and you said, he's more than that wicker chair, Fran. He's more than the Black Panther leader. He's a, he was funny and he was my love and he was romantic. And it, it's, you know, it stayed with me forever because I had absolutely this image of him in the chair, a strong panther, you know, right. and um, you took it down to this whole humanized level of you just, he was just the man you loved. He was so not that guy in the wicker chair. He didn't even like the picture. I think Eldridge, it was Eldridge's idea and they staged it. Huey referred to himself and wanted people to refer to him as servant. And then we called him servant not minister, not minister of defense, servant of the people. And so that speaks to the heart of the man that he, that he really was here to serve the people. And uh, I think that gets lost. And this came from a deep sense of love for his people, which is why he was so willing to um, make all the sacrifices that he did. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't fall in. I was afraid of that guy in the wicker chair. I avoided the, the office, the Black Panther Party office on Shattuck. I avoided the Black Panther Party office on Shattuck and AJ's artistic fingers right next door where all the pimps used to get their hair done. I avoided, avoided the whole scene. I walked across the street. So I was, you know, I was frightened of that, that guy that image of that guy in the wicker chair. So when I met him, he was so different than this public image of him. It made it even more striking, you know, the difference between who he was and who, he, who I perceived him to be. You know, he was quiet, he was a little awkward, a little shy, you know, um, at least with me, he was. Um, he had a crush on you. I'm sure he was more dorky towards you than others. <laughs> fumbling over his words you know <laughs> yeah, he definitely fumbled over his words so. yeah but he was completely accepting of who I was and and a family so important to me he was you know my mother loved him she introduced me to him and my brother was very connected to Huey 
So he, from the very beginning, he was just family. Do you feel the man you love comes through in the monument? Because that's a tough one to reconcile, right? Because the, the people want to see Huey Newton, this leader, you know, powerhouse with a beret and, you know, ready to fight. Um, but he's a dorky, kind lover who's in love with a woman. You know, <laughs> he's just a guy who <laughs> loves a woman. <laughs> I mean, I guess all of it is real. All of it is true. All, I, I needed it to show strength, vision, and purpose, and and heart. You know, it's not easy. Dana is wonderful. And Dana said, as long as you're happy, she's happy. She always yeah. said that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm going to miss working with her. Of And and for you as well, you know, to, to release this piece that you've been so intimately connected to. You know, mm -hmm. as an artist, you like sort of turn your soul inside out, expose it to the world, and they criticize that they don't like whatever color or they didn't like this line or, you know, and it's like your yeah. heart, your blood, sweat and tears that you're exposing. Um, do you feel a sense of that when you release this Huey monument to the world? I, I, I'll have to see exactly how I feel. I think yeah. that I've been a little nervous lately wondering what people would think. Oh, why didn't you put the beret on and why didn't you have a leather jacket? You know, I know that once you put yourself out there, you, you're, it's such an intimate piece for me. Like right. I just, I just drove past the street the other day for the first time since it's been renamed. It's a very intimate experience. It's a very private experience for me to see that street and to know that this was, that this work happened and that this is where he, the spirit of this man is. So I, yeah, I, I may have created this little bubble where it doesn't really matter. This is, Huey on this rock and this is what we did to get him there and you know it just feels like a very private experience so yeah it's got to be tough to reconcile because you're sort of giving him to the world uh and keeping him close as well it's yeah that was always something tough to reconcile yeah <laughs> I'm sure go. right right I'm sure from the minute you met him that was something you were trying to reconcile it was and they were always stolen moments you know it was always right. And maybe perhaps this is, you know, a way of letting him go in a way that has been hard in the past. It's really going to be an anchor point, I think, in the middle of Oakland. You know, Fran, it's so interesting you say that because it's already happened. I know that there's a walk that's being planned, I think, in support of um, uh, political prisoners, or Mumia in particular, yeah, um, yeah. and they called it this sacred space. So it's going to be there on that street in this sacred space. That's a quote. So it's wow. already being seen in that way with the mural and, you know, with, with the bust and the street name change. I, I think there's something happening. And long overdue. I mean, to um, folks who are helping each other and saving the world to be demonized and treated in such a way. I mean, finally, to acknowledge heroes for being heroes. Yeah, um, it's so important, and to create that space where it, it can be acknowledged mm -hmm. uh, yes. with Huey. You know, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm so oh. proud to know you, and so proud uh, you keep fighting yeah. the good fight. I just and it keeps getting bigger. It keeps. <laughs> we talked what a year ago about a mm -hmm. Black Panther monument, and now there's a Huey monument, a museum, a park. Um, I love yeah. it. You know, it's so important. So October 24th, the unveiling of the Huey Monument. Is yeah, that it's actually the weekend of the 55th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, and there'll be an event there. It's about time the Panther alumni are putting together an event 
and this will be part of that weekend. <laughs> That's huge. So you have two monuments, two public pieces going. So yeah. the monument to the Black Panther Party is still in the permitting phase. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you're meeting with Biden's people this week, you said? So there's the National Park Unit that we're working to establish, right? And that's, you know, you can think of like national parks, but imagine like a visitor center, something that looks like a museum, you know, on this established site owned by the National Park Service, federal government type of thing, right? And then you have all these historic landmarks across the country, but particularly here, particularly here in the Bay Area. Uh, so, for example, maybe an old uh, Black Panther headquarters will have the sign in front of it designating it as a national landmark with some history behind it. Got so it's it. a kind of, right, so when Frederica was talking about the reconnaissance study, right, you have to know what's all included before you start establishing these national park units. So this study is, uh, you know, particular to the Bay Area. But as she said, there are so many cities with Black Panther chapters. So it's really a national study that could lead to one of the largest national park units ever established in our country. So that's what we're working with that. Uh, we just got resolutions for Richmond, Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. So Barbara Lee can take those to Biden's desk and hopefully he can sign off to get the reconnaissance study started again after ordered it in the past. I mean, there are some landmarks in New York, Philly. I mean, that's huge. Wow. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to live in New York. I spent time in D.C. in Memphis, Chicago. I went all these places and you talk to the people and it seemed like they had an understanding of the history that these uh, historic landmarks told. Right. It was like common knowledge to talk about these things. But coming from Los Angeles and California, we don't have those kind of things. And so I had always imagined figuring out how do we build black history into the built environment? Right. How do we do that? How do we facilitate that conversation? And where are people hearing these stories, too? You know, I mean, that's what worries me, because you don't want these stories to get lost. Absolutely. And so by claiming the land and, and by you know, making these stories, I mean, that just feels so solid. Um, yeah. That's awesome. You both talked about it, but we haven't known, most people haven't known genuine Panther history. There's been no control over the narrative uh, right. or if any control, it's been done by the FBI and conservative media. Uh, and so the Panthers have mostly only been demonized. And so for the first time, the Dr. Hugh P. Noonan Foundation is getting a hand up on controlling that narrative and saying, this is who the Panthers were. For the first time we could say, Huey was a human, right? <laughs> that's talking about yeah. control over the narrative. Right. Uh, and I think that's really important when we think about the things that we learn and how we learn them. A hundred percent. I mean, just that simple. Huey was a human who loved people, who cared about the well-being of people. And he put his life on the line for it. The possibilities are endless. You know, we've definitely started tapping into having that AR experience around, you know, the, the statue of Huey Newton. But I think to build off of that, the bigger kind of once you have a thirst for knowledge, where do you inquire you know, about this stuff? We're still building on that project to digitize all the Black Panther newspapers to make them searchable, indexed, categorized, so they're easy to go through, right? That anybody can go through them and understand the history of the party, right? So it's like, yay, these built structures, a statue of Huey Newton, right? That's part one, right? Part two is building this whole augmented reality experience around it. And then part three is then being attached to the actual 
digitized newspapers that teach you the most information about the party. It's so brilliant. I mean, it's so important to keep stories, maintain stories and share them the correct way. I mean, there's nothing more important. Um, wh who had saved all the newspapers? Well, originally the foundation had a, a whole set, you know, a lot was left to the estate um, by Huey and we were able to people donated along the way. Ultimately, we get pretty close to a full set and then it was digitized before they were lost. So we have them, they're all digitized and there are different, there are different uh, institutions that have full sets still. How are you thinking about your museum? Uh, no matter what the logistics end up being once it's built, at our core will always remain uh, or always value accessibility for everybody getting this message out to everyone. Of course, we know that institutions cost money, especially museums, but that's where the partnerships come You know, from. at that Oakland Museum on the 50th anniversary with 84,000 visitors, 84,000 plus, it was the most um, visited exhibit that they had in the history, the history of the museum. That's telling you something. Absolutely. All over, I saw people there from all over the world. So people are hungry for this knowledge. It's easy to do the, it's easier to do this work because so many people want to consume this information. And I wouldn't take that lightly because uh, it's somewhat new to have all of this support from every angle. When I went to college in New York at St. John's University, we had one of the biggest student movements the university had ever seen, uh, the black and brown students did. And our Bibles were the autobiography of Asada Shakur and Kwame Ture's Black Power. And in the same way that civil rights and black power organizers had been looking back to the Harlem Renaissance and other movements around that time in the 20s and 30s, we were looking back you know, to the Black Panther Party and affiliated groups or adjacent groups as inspiration, as theoretical frameworks, as ways to understand the current world we were living in and where we need to take the mantle. And so I think that underneath all of this was this large youth movement between colleges, between youth and, and across different cities, uh, just kind of pushing for new policy changes, largely around police brutality since Trayvon Martin kind of reinvigorated things. And then you have this sprout of this Black Lives Matter movement, and I mean that broadly defined, of people just saying enough is enough. We have to have an alternative future. And so when you talk about what is the impact of these monuments, right? Uh, the statue of Huey Newton and then the Black Panther Party monument that we want near Lake Merritt, central to Oakland. I think the beauty of it is that for one, the legacy is that we're working with this broader movement, with the youth, with what's kind of percolating right now in our environment. And we're not doing it alone, right? The legacy is that we're movement building, right? That's what it is, we're movement building, but we're doing it with the people uh, in a way that reflects on history, inspires people, and then actually gets people engaged with the actual text, actual thoughts, right? The actual uh, survival programs that the party was about, right? The actual work. And I think it's just, it's hard to think about legacy without thinking about the past. Well said. Very well said. Yeah, and I think it's simply to say for me that I, again, I do want to inspire young freedom fighters who may feel that they, for some reason, can't do what the Black Panther Party did, but they can do that and more. So I want it to be an inspiration. I want them to feel inspired by the work that we did, to know that it came from love, it was out of love for them and their children and their grandchildren and to know that they too can do this work in whatever big or small way. And that again, we didn't do it alone. 
we worked in coalition with so many like-minded organizations. So I want everyone that's fighting for freedom to, to come and look at these monuments and, and, and just feel inspiration from, from that movement. Absolutely. Do you think the monuments could potentially spark a resurgence of the Black Panthers? I don't know about the Black Panthers, but definitely a movement. You know, there, there were conditions that, not, that are not unlike conditions today that um, sparked that movement then. So right. yeah, it may not be the Black Panther Party, but it can be whatever version that works today, taking from not only the, the, um, the, self, the criticism of the party or things where we might have gotten it wrong to the many things that we got right. Because I think a lot of people ask that question, where, when's the Black Panther Party coming back? And I think the most important takeaways from the party are one, uh, their survival programs, right? Uh, making sure that people had food, that they had medical clinics, that there were sickle cell testing, anything that the Black community needed in a very local context, they made sure they could deliver those services. The second takeaway, very knowledgeable of the law, understanding what their rights were, right? And making sure they could spread that information uh, in very like tangible ways so people can understand it. Um, and then three, I think Frederick already said, it's the love part. Um, and I, I think that's cannot be undersold because I think a lot of times with activist work, you get so caught up in the anger of just being passionate about what you're angry about that you forget that all of this work is about loving your people. And when that's central to your work, it's so much easier to build coalition with people. It's so much easier to uh, work with people maybe don't believe exactly in the same ideals, but have similar outcomes, right? That love part has to be central to it. And so I think you can have like self-defense. You can be that militaristic kind of toting guns people. Uh, but if you as long as you understand that love is at the core of that, right? You can protect out of love. Um, so how has this sort of toppling of monuments, this summer of change of public art, how has that changed your process at all or your thought process around these monuments? Has it had any impact? I think it's kind of fortified what it is that we're doing. Um, even when you look around this town, there's no monument that speaks to, I don't know, any freedom fighter here. Are there any monuments that speak to anybody just remember them, but it's not really remember local. Them. It's not a local yeah, story. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's nothing that speaks to any local activists or local freedom fighters. So I think it's kind of fortified and um, the work that we're doing for me and really confirmed the need. Because I remember the first time when I came to the D. Young, I was a little a little reluctant to talk about that whole movement of um, toppling monuments. I think, what was that about a year and a half ago? Yeah. It, it wasn't, I mean, we weren't riding on that. It was, it was our decision to create monuments, not in place of, but because there was nothing there. The largest monuments in this country haven't even yet been toppled. We have these freeways constructed in the 50s and 60s that cut right through black neighborhoods and purposely destroyed black business districts. And that happened all over the country, but especially in California. And yet we breathe in and look at these freeways every single day, 
right? We walk through downtowns, right? Cities that were purposely built by white developers, mostly sprouting in the 1980s and 1990s, as far as the cities we know today. Contracts are given exclusively to white developers and black developers were kept out. We walk around these cities every day and say, this is normal. These are monuments to capitalism, the type of capitalism that purposely excludes black people from the economy. Uh, so I, I was just thinking, well, if we build the Black Panther Party monument, maybe we can provide an alternative to racial capitalism. Maybe we can teach people that, hey, there are other ways of thinking about the world that we live in. And everything doesn't have to be how it is just because we see it every single day. I mean, I've been doing all this work around public monuments. Hadn't even thought about highways and freeways. Yeah. It's so interesting historically because where that Huey's monument is going to be placed. It was right where the Nimitz Freeway was that fell during the during the, the earthquake in 1989. So that's where that monument will be placed, right there, that, the site that was the freeway. What well, would you want to see people leaving for Huey? Uh, well, I'll tell you what his favorite flowers was the gardenia. So he always floated gardenias. We were actually thinking about making the peace allow for a gardenia to be placed there in the water. So flowers would be nice. I was walking fearlessly, but now I fly. Oh, I hear your voice deep in the water. With you, everything is worth. The Dr. Huey P. Newton Foundation is bringing the Black Panther legacy while carving out a permanent space in Oakland, home of the Black Panthers. This is beyond remembrance. It's about reshaping history, learning, and honoring to move forward towards a systemically inclusive world. Monuments and memorials are powerful touch points through which communities reconcile with their past and set the tone of conversations about the future. Next week, Please join us when I have the great honor of talking with the amazing artist Dana King, classical figurative sculptor who creates public monuments of black bodies in bronze. Her latest project includes the creation of a Huey Newton bust for the foundation. King opens up about her studio space and talks about how sculptures provide an opportunity to shape culturally significant memories and reveal common threads of shared values. I'm Francesca D'Alessio, and I oversee the public programs initiatives at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, and I'm your host for this series. Please visit our website, deyoung.famsf.org backslash programs backslash local voices to find transcripts for this episode and to be sure to subscribe to our museum's email newsletters to learn all about what's going on here at the DeYoung.